You're listening to TIP. On today's show, we have a really hot topic that many people in the finance industry are talking about, and that's the strange events happening in the $100 billion overnight repo markets. Our guest, Luke Roman, is a TIP fan favorite that's one of the smartest guys in the industry, and we are so excited to cover this topic with him this week. Throughout the episode, we help people understand the basics of the repo market, what the stress is that we're currently seeing, and whether this means that there's more QE on the way. Finally, we talk about how this might impact the stock market and other macro themes. So without further delay, here's our chat with Luke Roman. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. Hey, everyone. Welcome to The Investor's Podcast. I'm your host, Preston Pish, and as always, I'm accompanied by my co-host, Stig Broderson. And today, we have brought back the one and only Luke Roman. Welcome back to The Investor's Podcast. I have no idea how many times we've had you on, but every single time we have you back, you're a crowd favorite, and we always learn so much. And so, Luke, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me back on, guys. It's great to be back. So we're talking about a hot topic today. And I mean, you can't get this word said enough in the news right now. And for people that are listening to this in the future, here we are the 25th of September in 2019. And the big word that we're talking about is repo. Everyone is talking about repo. I would argue very few understand what repo is. And so what we really want to kind of accomplish here is like, let's start off with the basics Let's define terminology. Let's talk about the basic mechanics of of the repo market. How would you explain this to, if you were going to a high school class and you were talking to some kids, how would you describe the repo market? I would describe it in brief that it is basically the plumbing that makes the financial system run. The key is that it's the plumbing to the system. You know, in a repo transaction is just you know, a dealer lends securities, gets back cash at a small haircut, and whether that's an overnight transaction, it says, and it's just a means of cheap and safe financing for other positions. And that's why it's so important and why it's such a big, you know, why it's the plumbing in essence. So let's just take, for example, let's say that you're sitting on a bunch of bonds and I'm another bank. Say you're a bank and I'm a bank. You're sitting on a bunch of bonds. I have a bunch of cash. I basically take possession of your bonds. I provide you the cash that I was holding. We already have, when we do that deal, we have it structured that tomorrow morning, we're going to then swap back. You're going to pay me a little bit of interest on that. And the interest should be between the federal funds rate, which right now is 1.75 and 2%. And so we pay a little bit of interest on that exchange. And then I take possession of my cash again, and you take possession of your bonds. And that's the end of the deal. But that term was that one day term or whether whether it's a two week term is established before that trade between the two of us occurs is am i describing it appropriately there yeah that's i think a fair description and so i think it's important for people to understand that you have basically two different markets here you have the federal funds you have the fed funds where banks can conduct this exchange with a central bank and it's uncollateralized interbank loans. But then whenever you get into repo where it's between two banks, that's when it becomes securitized between the two parties. So if I'm providing some type of asset to Luke, there's there's a redeemability to that. It's almost like 
when when somebody has a house, the bank can take repossession of the house to make it securitized. So these repos that are happening between banks are securitized when they're happening between a bank and the central bank. That's whenever they're uncollateralized obligations between the two of them in the repo market. So just to kind of get some of that terminology out of the way, let's talk about what in the world's happening. So here on this, or I'm sorry, on the 16th of September, the overnight general collateral repo traded as high as 8%, which is 6% higher than the 1.75 to 2% range. And just to kind of give people an idea of how ludicrous this is, since 2006, this has never happened. In fact, that much of a move beyond what is what we'd call a normal deviation of how much of a premium people would pay over this federal funds rate, this would be described as, I think, like a 42 standard deviation event <laughs> is how far off the variance we are with this. I mean, this is just a total break that happened on the 16th of September. So you were on our show and when was this Luke? This was probably June June 25th. I was looking at the notes 25th of June. And I remember the conversation because you kept bringing this up and you kept saying, you know, this is, this is not normal. This is, (laughs) this is broke and this is going to be a story. And sure enough, here we are by September. I mean, you nailed it. I mean, you saw this months before this became a thing. So Tell people what you were seeing back then, and then describe this interest on excess reserves versus the federal funds rate and how that works. If we go back in time you know, to five years ago, foreign central banks stopped growing their holdings of treasury bonds, and that was a big moment, number one. And so when that happened, you saw uh, moves in the U.S. and abroad to begin to shift the financing of U.S. government deficits onto the global private sector. And so you saw that begin to crowd out global euro dollar markets. LIBOR began rising. You saw the U.S. Uh, take uh, regulatory steps, such as regulating banks into buying more treasury bonds with HQLA. 1516, you saw uh, the regulation of money market funds into buying a lot more treasury bonds and keep that one in mind because that's going to come back to uh, be important uh, in the the repo story and I think going forward as well. This process of basically shifting the financing of the U.S. government from from global central banks to the global private sector took place from 3Q14 and then sort of, uh, I would say, came to a head last year in the third quarter of 2018 when Due to uh, regulatory changes, banks stopped growing as fast or stopped growing at all, uh, depending on who you talk to, their FX swap books. And that's when FX hedged treasury yields went negative for the first time in, I, I, I think, ever. But the punchline was basically that was a moment where the foreign private sector began being paid effectively not to buy treasuries on a hedged basis. And so that began to weaken the marginal foreign private sector bid for treasuries and pushed more of that onto the domestic sector entirely, and in particular, the U.S. banking sector. And so fourth quarter of 2018, excuse me, you saw um, U.S. primary dealers buy treasuries uh, at about a $600 billion annual rate in the fourth quarter, which is a lot. (laughs) And that continued into the first quarter of this year in terms of them buying more and more and more of the U.S. government's deficits being financed by the domestic private sector. And that came to a head in March, where Fed funds rates went over interest on excess reserves and stayed there. Now, 
Interestingly, back in March, it was said by some people, you know, uh, that, that really, you know, are really in deep in these markets, that it was just a technical, it was a short term, temporary, technical, that there are ways for the Fed to fix this. You know, at the time we said, yeah, there are ways for them to fix it, but that's ignoring the bigger picture. And so you fast forward three months, we had two cuts to interest on excess reserves. You had two Fed funds rates cuts. And they still never, they still haven't gotten Fed funds rates below uh, interest on excess reserves. And our whole case this whole time was that what you're seeing is the accelerating crowding out. The Fed funds rates over IOER was a symptom of the accelerated, the acceleration of the crowding out of the U.S. private sector that really began five years ago and came to, you know, really accelerated in 3Q18 with FX hedge treasury yields going negative, negative excuse me. And then, you know, accelerated further in March. And what I think ultimately we're seeing now with what happened in repo last week is I think another important acceleration or this U.S. fiscal crisis, for lack of a better word, incipient fiscal crisis, perhaps more more apt, is accelerating further. It's getting more acute. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Don't just ride the index. Seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. Our friends at Coriant provide wealth management services centered around you. Coriant's goal is to exceed your expectations and simplify your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. They are one of the largest integrated fee-only U.S. registered investment advisors, and Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. They have extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. The teams at Coriant put the collective power of their expertise into building you the custom wealth, investment, and family office solutions that can help you reach your holistic financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, speak with an advisor today at Coriant.com. That's spelled C-O-R-I-E-N-T dot com. That's Corient dot com. When Rain Wilson had a great idea, he turned to AT&T Business. They assured him no matter how out there his idea may be, they had his back. So we came up with this, a talking pillow designed to put you to sleep, backed by a reliable network and the only network with built-in security controls. And thus, Sleep With Rain was a hit. Take your business to the next level at business.att.com. That's business.att.com. All right, back to the show. Luke, you were talking about the transition there at the end of 2018 where international banks, especially in Europe, stopped buying U.S. debt, which meant that the primary buyers here in the U.S. were forced by law due to the changes of basically what happened in the 2008 financial crisis. Is the requirement to purchase really what's causing the drain in liquidity that's driving so much of the repro problems. That way you described it is, is fair, that ultimately that transition, and again, foreign private sector has not stopped buying, but they've stopped buying enough. And you know they, 
deficits are rising faster than their appetite to grow them because they're, they're you know right now you know when I talked to you in June at the end of June I want to say the FX hedged yield on a 10-year treasury for a yen investor was like negative 60 basis points and for a euro investor negative 85 and those numbers are now uh, negative 100 basis points and negative 125 respectively you know ballparkish so uh, you know before today's for the last week or so's move so they've gotten more negative in other words the there's more incentive to either not buy not roll treasuries or take the dollar risk on yourself which you can do on the margin but you simply can't do that for really big books and so that by nature forces more of the financing of US deficits onto the US private sector now everyone's been talking about the banks and you know there's been uh, several prime you know really three primary dealers that have bought uh, you know this is per Zoltan Pozar's work uh, about 200 billion dollars in treasuries over the last 15 months and that's a substantial portion of the US's deficit over that time but not as many people are talking about just the general absorption of US economic liquidity when you know there was an article in the Wall Street Journal in early July uh, noting that for the first time in a long time maybe ever uh, the majority of the US's long-term debt was being purchased by US individual retail uh, you know retail investors so you know to the extent that I have a finite balance sheet and I want to own 10-year treasuries yes they're marketable but once I buy those treasuries I can buy treasuries or I can buy a car or I can buy I can't use that treasury as collateral for something else per se. And so I think there's sort of two portions of this, you know, uh, sucking out of liquidity. It's it's what's happening at the primary dealer level, but then I also think it's there there's a less discussed topic of we're financing our own deficits for the first time really in 70 years and so there's actually sort of classic crowding out taking place. So what is driving that shift of why other countries are not buying U.S. debt? I think it's a couple of things. I think, you know, mechanically for the private sector, I think they are uh, apolitical and just, you know, they're profit motivated. And so it's that FX hedge treasury yields going negative begins to change their economics. And, and the way you fix that is either a much weaker dollar to normal to normalize FX hedge yields. So you need a much weaker dollar or you need much higher rates. But I, I think away from that, which we already touched on, I think it's it's two things. I think it's number one, when you hear slowing trade, when you hear you know China's current account surplus is vanishing for secular reasons as they become more consumer and less export driven, you know we hear about that a lot as it's negative for China or as it's a change for China. And what we never hear about is that the flip side of that coin, which is they don't have the dollars to reinvest back into treasuries. Similarly, what we've seen in oil, where we hear on, you know, the U.S. is becoming self-sufficient in oil, shale has capped oil prices, shale has taken power from OPEC, all true. But we rarely hear the flip side of that, which is at $55 a barrel, OPEC doesn't have a lot of dollar surpluses to reinvest into treasuries like they used to. So some of it is secular current account surplus deterioration, call it, amongst the big creditor nations in the world, which are really... You know, China, Germany, South Korea, and then it falls off pretty sharply there. You know, it, it, depending where you are in the oil cycle, it, it's OPEC. And then I think there's geopolitical reasons as well. Uh, of course, you've seen with Russia, you know, China, others as well. But uh, to the extent that we are spending inordinate amount of times trying to sanction a lot of people, we'll say, um, 
you know, I think that uh, that doesn't help make the case for for redeploying any surpluses that they do have and which are shrinking into into treasuries. I'm sure the typical listener hearing this conversation is just saying, well, how in the world are interest rates over in Europe all negative? No matter where you go, they're negative. Here in the U.S., the 10-year treasury is still positive by quite a bit. And by when I say quite a bit, I mean like higher than 1.5% on the 10-year, um, which is, I guess, laughable. But in comparison, that doesn't add up. So they're saying, well, you would think that the, the capital over in Europe, for example, would absolutely be buying up U.S. debt if they've got a positive yield. So explain to the audience why that's happening. Yeah, I think a lot of it has to do with what after FX hedging costs yields are doing. And what that means is you can buy treasury bonds and you know the 10-year at, say, whatever, 1.8% today, 1.75% today. You can you can buy those, and there seems to be an easy pickup in yield. But you're absorbing the tre- the the risk of the dollar falling against the euro. And so, if you know, you look back to 2017, the dollar or the DXY fell about 12% in 12 months. And so, you know, the the risk of the dollar may not seem like much, but if you're running a 50 or 100 billion dollar portfolio and you're unhedged and the dollar falls 12% in 12 months again, or there's a plaza accord like we had in 85 where it falls 25 or 30%, you're gonna be out of a job, best case. And so you need to hedge those the, the FX risk. And once you go to do that, the, historically, for a long period of time, that had been positive, which suffice it to say it was positive up until third quarter of 18, borrow money in Euro, put money into treasuries, hedge the dollar risk and still, you know, pay the insurance, that's basically an insurance premium, the FX hedge, and still earn a positive carry, still earn a positive yield after that cost. And after 3Q18, the cost of insuring a fall in the dollar got so expensive that you could no longer afford to borrow money in euros, buy US treasuries, hedge out the dollar risk and earn a positive yield. And so the opposite is also true. And so, you know, as U.S. dollar investors, you and I could, in theory, buy euro debt and sell euro forward. And the hedging cost pickup to us at American investors, we could earn more doing that trade than we could just buying 10-year treasury at 1.75% today. So considering the drop-off of buying happening in Q4 2018, we do hear arguments for some of the players that if you're a European banker, the dollar needs to devalue against other currencies, including the euro. And that is why it's happening. The way the markets are pricing, that's a fair statement. But I don't know that that's what they are saying per se, because really what drove it was a balance sheet constraint. What was happening is largely U.S. banks were growing their swap books infinitely and basically taking on the risk of a falling dollar. And by that happening, that was allowing the global private sector to buy treasuries hedged and still make a positive carry. So basically, the U.S. banking system through the swap books were absorbing the risk of a fall in the dollar. And starting last fall, basically for regulatory reasons and i still don't know which regulator why i don't know if it was basel or if it was it was dodd frank whatever reason a balance sheet constraint hit where they basically discouraged the infinite growth of those fx swap books at that point and once that happened then you began to see you know market forces where suddenly 
you know, if you can't hedge, then the price of the hedge has to, or if you can't grow the hedge book, the price of the hedge goes up. And once the price of the hedge goes up, you know, so basically once the price of that hedge begins to go up without the growth of that balance sheet, to be clear, I don't know that the bankers over there are saying, okay, we think the dollar screwed. So this is something, this is a bet we want to make. I think it's the the way the balance sheet regulations are playing through or effectively you can infer that from from those movements. So let's talk a little bit more about this 8% blowout that happened here in September 16th. So if you've got the central bank willing to provide liquidity at this uh, 2% rate, right? And all of a sudden you have people saying, hey, I'll uh, pay 4%. I'll pay 5%. Just give me some cash. I'll pay 6%. I'll pay 8%, right? And this is an overnight, it's based on an annual rate, but for something that was normally 2% to get blow out, clear up to 8%. And historically, I think the deviation was like 0.02 or something like that. That's totally crazy. That tells you that there is there was no cash to provide this person who's wanting to take on the the position. So I mean, that's that's kind of crazy. And you weren't seeing this in the international markets. You were just seeing this in the U.S. Talk to us about that specific event. Look, I think there are, you know, I think there are near term uh, technical factors, short term factors at play. And then I think there's the overriding theme. Right. So within that, you had when I say the short term technical factors, I think the, the people that have been talking about those things, I think, are absolutely right. And by that, I mean, you're coming up on quarter end, and so there's uh, liquidity requirements, window dressing that banks want to do. That happens every quarter. You had a corporate tax payments due, so that's also draining cash out of the system. That was known ahead of time. It still happens. Um, I think those two factors should come and go. You had the Saudi uh, attack on that Saturday, uh, and there were, you know, credible rumblings that the Saudis and the aftermath of that were in the markets on Monday and Tuesday, draining cash to make payments to, you know, fund whatever they need to do. Obviously, they have dollar needs to fund the kingdom, and if half the oil's down or half the oil production capabilities are down, you'd expect their cash burn rate to possibly be fairly substantial. And so you would expect to see them draining that. So I think you had a number of or a confluence of, of short-term factors, some expected, some unexpected, but all short-term technical drivers. And I think a lot of the narrative around what happened last Monday and Tuesday have been focused on these things. And that's not to say they aren't correct. Some of the things we were talking about in June would have happened regardless, but I think some of these short-term technical factors probably brought it to a head sooner and maybe more explosively. Like I said, the short-term is where we're seeing the narrative really focused on, and there just is not a lot of discussion going on around, this is the first time we're having to finance our own deficits in 70 years, and you know, between the liquidity coverage ratios, the requirements of primary dealers to bid at auctions and and deficits which are simply not slowing down and that's assuming we don't get into a recession there's not a lot of discussion still around that portion of what drove last week so look in europe they're working with a model where more money is going out than is going in and you have people here in the US who are seeing the effects of those policies and they're saying that they don't want to go there how do you see the policies here in the U.S. being influenced by European central banking? 
I think the repo programs they put in place buy them time. Look, if I was them, I think they've handled this as best as best they could. Really, they're in a very they're they're in an unwinnable situation because the reality is is the political side has been irresponsible to varying degrees or wanting to kick the you know kick the can for that irresponsibility for eighty years, and so nobody wanted to you know basically it's fallen onto the Fed's lap. It's accelerated under Trump. So now I think, you know, given all of that, I think they've done not that bad. I think they've done what they could, which is to say, if I'm them, you know, I put this repo program into place. I say it's temporary. I extend it out around quarter end. And this, you know, this buys me three or four weeks. And now I can start to change messaging. And, you know, because realistically, you can't go from we're going to do three or four more cuts to, you know, we're going to do $100 billion a month in QE until further notice, right? Because that could create more problems than it solves. You've got to allow, you know, the levered plays and the markets to begin to sort of go the other. We've got $16 trillion in negative interest rate debt that's on the wrong side of the boat, in my opinion, because they're, they're going to go to QE. I mean, it's, and maybe you're starting to see it today with the long end of the curve backing up, uh, pretty pronounced real rates turning higher. Yeah, their next step, I think, is they're going to have to do QE because, again, People said, well, this is just temporary. I said, it's just temporary. Fine. Step away from the money markets. Let them go back to eight because the deficits aren't going away. And at negative 100 basis points, the Europeans aren't going to be buying, you know, private sector's not going to be buying enough treasuries. So step away and let's see what happens for a month at 8% uh, repo. Talk to the audience about what a standing repo facility is and what kind of function that could play in all of this. It would do a lot towards liquidity, as I understand. I mean, it's effectively a wand you could wave and magically turn treasuries on bank balance sheets into cash whenever you need it, which is very powerful, very liquefying. It effectively amounts to, uh, again, financing the fiscal authority through the banking system via, you know, by the monetary authority. So let's transition back to the discussion about Europe. Because regardless of what is happening in the U.S., Europe has these banks that are just too big to fail. So if the policy is to do more QE and drive down interest rates even more, how can that persist? Yeah, you know, there's, there's some interesting things going on with Europe. There's, I would say, three things. So there's this tiered structure that they just laid out, which I'm trying to read as much as I can. There is, call it, the implications for the dollar and for the treasury, you know, treasury market of a rise in long-term rates in Europe and in particularly the Bund as a, as a potential carry trade is unwound. And then there's what they've been doing in energy, which is interesting as well and could buy them room. So I'll, I'll touch on each quickly. So the, the tiered system that they began discussing or rolling out a Draghi proposed what last week or 10 days ago, you know, people that are really deep in the weeds on this think it's a really big deal in terms of just the amount of liquidity it could it could drive. That it could be a real game changer in terms of asking that question, you know, how much more QE can they do that, you know, doesn't hurt the banks. This might and you know basically my understanding is they're basically paying the banks to make loans effectively. So to your point, the question at this point is, is political. It seems like more there seems to be some some pushback on that, as well as on the fiscal side, which ties into the second point, which is you've actually started to hear even you know some of the Germans say we need to do more fiscal stimulus and and take advantage of you know basically 
you know, hit this hit this bid in the bond market and and do some fiscal stimulus. We'll see politically and to me, the question, too, is if you have a backup in boon rates, um, you know, does that lead to an unwind you've seen? Has there been a carry trade of some description put on where you're short boons and long dollars, long treasuries? What does that do to the global financial system, setting aside any of the FX hedging that stuff we talked about before? And then the last part, I think, too, within Europe has been what we've seen since late June regarding energy, where the Europeans have been you know, for lack of a better word, they've, they've shown surprising backbone vis-a-vis the United States over the last three months in regards to Iran, in regards to setting up this SPV, a special purpose vehicle to buy oil from Iran in euros. And, you know, last fall, three they're the world's biggest energy importer. They spent $300 billion or 300 billion euro a year with 85% of that being spent in dollars, which makes no sense to them. And so, if they were able to convert that entire bill into euro, it's basically a $250 billion increase to their current account surplus instantly, which you can then redeploy. It, it, it buys them time at the very least. And you can talk about how you can spend it. If, can they get out of their own way politically uh, in terms of deciding what to do with it? But the bottom line is their current account surplus would rise by you know, 250 billion right off the bat, which then would allow them to say, "Hey, China will, or hey, U.S. will weaken, or excuse me, will strengthen the euro X because we know we have the breathing room with this 250 billion we're picking up over here." So those are the three things I'm looking at with Europe. So let's quickly talk about how do you position yourself through all of this because this is this is some crazy stuff. The last time we talked, you had brought up gold, you've brought up Bitcoin. What are where do people position themselves, particularly if you're a baby boomer and you're in a position where you just can't have an appetite for a lot of volatility? What in the world do you do? Yeah, it, it's it's hard. You know, to me, the one thing that is crystal clear to me is that we are moving towards QE or MMT or capping of yields uh, at the long term or all of the above. The bottom line is that. It is a matter of national security for the U.S. and other Western social democracies, if you will, for their bonds to be certificates of confiscation on a real basis. And so if I'm a baby boomer uh, or somebody who's you know, retiring or retired, the way I'm thinking about it in terms of my long term assets, that's sort of like the we- for the wheels to not completely come off the cart and for you to need, you know, spam and gold and guns and you know k rations sovereign bonds have to yield negative on a real basis for an extended period of time it's just where we are with debt levels it's how it's worked out so understanding that to me i think everybody needs to have an allocation of you know physical gold five to ten percent more if you really understand gold markets and and really feel like you understand what's happening here i still like equities relative to you know debt but I ultimately think, again, tying back to this the, on the real basis, the, the debt has to lose on a real basis to be for, for sort of everything to kind of hold together. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. If you're looking for the right franchise concept at the right time, an iFlex Stretch Studio franchise is the business for you. iFlex is the newest franchise concept from the founders of the Joint Chiropractic. With over 200 licenses already awarded to our regional developers, there's never been a better time to own an iFlex franchise in your market. 
An iFlex Stretch Studio franchise offers its clients the best in professional-assisted stretching for one affordable price in one beautiful location. Even the Mayo Clinic says stretching can increase flexibility and improve your joint's range of motion, helping you move more freely. Prime regional developer opportunities and franchise locations are going fast. Don't miss this opportunity to get into this rapidly growing health and wellness business from the founders of The Joint Chiropractic. Find out more today. Call 888-994-3500. 539 or visit iflexpodcast.com call right now 888-994-3539 or visit iflexpodcast.com kyle you're connected with a ton of different investors and portfolio managers and you're just really in the know on a lot of these things how do you keep up with all the day-to-day headlines for your portfolio companies yeah so i used to have a ton of issues with this and that was until i started using yahoo finance Really? What's so great about it? So Yahoo Finance is awesome. I have my whole portfolio entered and I can easily see all the top headlines to keep up with the recent news. And each day you get an overview of the major global events that might be moving the market. So I'm ready to easily pounce on any opportunities that come my way. What else can you do on Yahoo Finance's platform? They also have a number of cool features, including a tool that lets you link all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings, and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Well, now I know that the audience is really going to love this one. And I actually see they have 90 million monthly active users. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. So let's imagine that the Fed comes out and they say that we need to do QE. Our past experience have resulted in assets going up in price in a major way. But given that we talked about, do you think a melt-up or a melt-down is most likely to occur? Uh, I feel like a melt-up is a much more likely scenario than a melt-down. A, positioning, right? You've got $16 trillion in negative interest rate debt. And it's been interesting. I think, you know, if I, if I was sitting in negative interest rate debt, 
seeing what the Fed did would scare me to death. Because to me, the message of, of last Monday and Tuesday, if you look at overriding, the, the, the dollar shortage came home. The U.S. money markets broke before China did. And when push came to shove, right, we, when we talked in June, I said our bet, you know, consensus is that the Fed will stand aside for a while and let people twist in the wind on risk. And we saw Fed fund where we saw repo go to eight. Fed didn't let anybody twist in the wind. How long did it take them? It didn't take them 24 hours. It took them 12 hours to respond. And now we've seen two or three upsizings to that, the addition of a two-week term repo and a doubling of that. I don't know if you saw that today, but they took the uh, the term repo from $30 billion to $60 billion, the $75 billion overnight to $100 billion. I was asked earlier this year, you know, if you're wrong or what, what are the signs you'll be looking for if you're wrong that you know, that the melt up isn't the right scenario. And one of the things I said was, look, when push comes to shove and the, well, if the Fed stands aside and lets people twist in the wind, that I'll have to completely revisit this. And Monday, Tuesday, boom, Fed was there. Fed's got your back. There's 16 trillion in negative interest rate debt going, push came to shove and the Fed was there in 12 hours to fix the problem. So you got billionaire Ray Dalio basically wrote his big piece probably like two months ago, a month and a half ago. And at the end of it, he was basically like saying, hey, gold is gold is the place to be. But if you go through a scenario, and I'm really just trying to play devil's advocate here, let's say that we go through a massive QE, we have a melt up, would high quality businesses outperform gold at that point? And does it make more sense to be positioned that way? I think it could. You know, if you look at how gold and, uh, you know, the correlation between gold and negative interest rate debt totals that we've seen, um, you know, I'm sure you've seen those charts. I think gold right now is very popular and I think it's very popular as both a safety trade and it's popular as a long duration in a negative interest rate environment trade. Right. And there's, you know, a fair number of tourists there. And so if I'm right that we get an equity melt up and that basically what we, you know, temporarily temporary open market operations turn into permanent open market operations or, or permanent temporary operate, however they structure it. And you start to see the long end of the curve back up. I think you could see gold sell off for a bit. I think that will, that could continue for a time until there is sort of, you know, and that might even be good for the dollar. So like you look at what happened today, you had the market's up, you know, risk or uh, equities up, you had the dollar up, you had yields up pretty sharply, you had gold down a bunch. I could see that for a bit as that sort of $16 trillion, oh God, the world's ending trade goes the other way. And now ultimately, I think there is a holy cow moment coming where it is, oh my God, the monetary authority is financing the fiscal authority and it's never going to stop until the dollar falls 10 or 15 or 20% relative to these other currencies. And that means, so when I look out, it comes down, you know, I think you could see gold underperform high quality equities for a bit. I ultimately think, you know, gold trades with a different numeral in the front of it, you know, in you know a couple, couple, three years out. I think yields can back up for a bit. But to me, the way I'm looking at the world, I think you could see a two stage rocket for the melt up. Right. So I think stage one for an equity market melt up is, oh, gosh, this isn't temporary. This is permanent OMO. And they're financing the deficits effectively. Boom. OK, I'm on the wrong side of the boat. 16 trillion, some portion of 16 trillion has to move into equities. That's point one. And as that happens, you start to see a backup in yields. If that backup in yields gets disorderly, we know what the Fed's going to do. They just did it to repo. 
Repo got disorderly. It was eight. The market said repo was eight, and Fed said, no, 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 it's two. And and it's well, here's fifty billion. Here's seventy five billion. Here's a hundred billion. And I think that's exact stage two of the equity melt up rocket. I think is yeah, you you get the long end, you know, selling off on this first day, this realization of oh god, they're financing and it's they're financing the, the deficits and it's not going to stop. The equity yields back up, and Leo Brainerd talked about this earlier this year. Clarida talked about this earlier this year. If push comes to shove, we'll cap long term yields like we did during World War II. And I think that's stage two, where you go from, oh God, I've got to get out of 16 trillion into equities and yields back up a bit. And if yields get sloppy, then the Fed says, well, in addition to the front end of the curve repo, we're also going to cap the long end of the curve at whatever politically tenable rate or politically expedient rate uh, we're required to do that at. And that's, I think, stage two of an equity melt up. And I just don't think it's fascinating. I don't think people think it's possible, and I think it's highly likely. It's where we are. There's nowhere else to finance these deficits. They are what they are. And it's, you know, it's interesting. People, some, someone said to me before that, you know, we're in this deflationary stage, you know, in terms of where, you know, where pressures are. And I said, well, you have to understand, we, we had an equity bubble, and we kicked it up to the banking system and the housing market, and then we had that bubble, we kicked it upstairs to the sovereign. It's been 100 years since you've had a bubble burst at the sovereign level. And the, the roadmap for sovereign bubble burst is very, very different. Now, you, you want to know what it looks like. You'll look at the Latin America, you know, Latin America, other emerging markets in the 80s and 90s, which is in hard currency, everything falls. Well, the only hard currency relative to the dollar is gold. And in local currency, risk assets, I mean, look at Venezuela. On a percentage basis, Venezuela has killed every market in the world for, you know, five, six, seven years in a row. Now, it, it hasn't gotten anything on a real basis. And so, when I think about, you know, back to your original question of where do you put your money, I think you have to have some money in the hardest in the hardest currency, which is gold. And then I think, you know, after that, it's basically a hierarchy of, you know, when you do monetary financing of the fiscal authority, okay, stocks do better than bonds. Bonds turn into certificates of confiscation. If I have to own bonds, I'd rather own, you know, Apple bonds than I would US Treasuries. Fascinating stuff. Luke Tell our audience where they can find you. I'm sure they're going to be looking you up after this discussion. So I'm just so thrilled to have you on. I, I really enjoy these conversations. I always learn so much. So thanks for coming on the show and tell people where they can learn more about you. Absolutely. No, it's uh, uh, probably the easiest place to find us at our website, FFTT, Frank, Frank, Tom, Tom, dash LLC.com. Uh, always updates there on what we're up to and uh, find out some more about our different uh, research product offerings uh, there. Uh, I've also got a very active Twitter feed at, uh, at Luke Groman, L-U-K-E-G-R-O-M-E-N. Luke, thank you so much for coming on the show. What a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. It's always great. I really enjoyed talking. All right, guys. That was all the press that I had for this week's episode of the Investors Podcast. We see each other again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.